0: Hello, and welcome to episode number 146 of the DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me today is Jane Litt from Dear Author and New York Times bestselling author, Julie James. We talk about her brand new book, Suddenly One Summer, the pressures that come with being an author who publishes one book a year, and also some of the books that she's been reading and enjoying lately. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater, and I will have information at the end of the podcast as to who this is. And this podcast is brought to you by Intermix, publisher of yours all along, the brand new Loving on the Edge e-novella from New York Times bestselling author Ronnie Lauren. It'll be on sale June 16th. And now, on with the podcast. Okay, so um, I'm assuming most people know who you are, Julie, but would you be so kind as to introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm Julie James. I write uh,
1: contemporary romances with Berkeley. I live in Chicago. Two kids.
0: Do you have a dog? We do. Will the we dog do. bark during the podcast? Because he, this is totally an improvement for me.
1: Yes, he he probably will yes. because our, our mailman comes
0: Perfect. right during
1: when we're recording here, I realized. Um, yes, we do have a dog. An I'm going to have to
0: what? change the name of the podcast to Romances and Random Pets because there's always a good pet noise. Usually not mine now, because I've gotten better about it. <laughs> right. I, I welcome yours. That would be awesome. So congratulations on your latest book. Thank you. You Thank slapped you. the crap out of the Times list. Well done. Uh, yeah, that was really exciting. Yeah. And yeah. you hit the the USA today, too, right? I did. First page,
1: like the way they break it down in the, on the when you see it in the PDF. I was the very last one on the first page. That's still the, a win, no matter yeah, what page was, you're on. It was just kind of this neat thing to see visually, you know, being on the first page. That's the first time that's happened for me. So, yeah,
0: yeah, that was really exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about your new book?
1: Sure. Uh, The new book is Suddenly One Summer. The heroine is a divorce lawyer. The hero is an investigative journalist with the Tribune. They live next door to each other for the summer. She moves in. She rents the place next door to his loft after there's a break-in at her town home and she no longer feels comfortable there so she rents the place next to him for the summer and the first part of the book is them not meeting each other yet but having a series of misunderstandings they can hear each other and they see who's coming in and out of each other's apartments and they start to draw conc- conclusions but the wrong conclusions about each other for example she sees all these different women coming and going from his place now she doesn't know that one's his best friend one's his sister things like that um, and so the first part is them sort of making these assumptions about each other. So when they do finally meet, there's a lot of friction and tension between them. But then um, a little subplot kicks in where she ends up taking on his sister as a client. Um, his sister is, um, has a baby and she's looking to track down the man she had the baby with to get child support for him, for, from him. And um, she teams up with Ford, the hero, Um, and they work together to track down this guy and through that they become closer and get to know each other better and then a different kind of sparks fly after that. So
0: this reminds me a little bit of the, of the book where, um, I apologize that I can never remember titles, but the one where Cameron can hear people having sex in the next hotel room and then she wakes up the next morning and someone's dead. Someone's dead, right. right. Overhearing and making assumptions on what you hear is a great way to bring people into um, awkward romance-appropriate situations. It's fun. Well, first of all, it works really well in
1: the city because, you know, you're in these... Um, loft condo buildings that used to be like a warehouse or whatever and the soundproofing. And I know this because the summer before the bar, actually, I lived in one of these before the bar exam. I lived in one of these places and you hear everything. Um, And so it's really neat um, in that aspect that it works so well with sort of like the city setting. Um, But yeah, it is. It's also fun because the reader knows generally what's going on. Um, so you can kind of laugh along that they're drawing the wrong conclusions about each other, even though we know what's really happening.
0: How does this fit with your, with your series? Can this be read as a standalone?
1: Yes. It, I don't call it part of the, um, FBI U.S. Attorney series. And the reason for that is because neither main character is an FBI agent or an assistant U.S. Attorney. Oh, well, is that all? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And no part of the plot has anything to do with the FBI or the U.S. Attorney's Office. So that being said, um, the hero of this book, Ford Dixon, um, what he showed up in two books ago, Love Irresistibly, he was that heroine's best friend. Um, So they are linked and you do see a few characters come back. But I think uh, it can completely be read as a standalone. Actually, I think all my books, I purposely write them so that you could read any of them as a standalone, pick them up in any order and sort of go from there. Some characters do come back, but I try and keep that a little bit to a minimum just so that those characters don't overwhelm the story. They sort of had their story. That's been done, and it's nice to check in with them, but I don't want it to be um, too much of an intrusion.
0: It's it's hard to define. It's not quite a series. It's like a related world set of books.
1: Exactly. I I, I don't even really call it, I mean, it kind of is a, the, the uh, like readers actually kind of named it. Yeah, I think it showed up on Goodreads um, and um, that they called it a series. And yeah, I would say exactly more, it's like this shared world in Chicago where a lot of people are, a lot of the main characters are lawyers or FBI agents and they kind of know each other. But um, I kind of look at it more as, you know, a bunch of separate stories in this shared world.
2: So this is your eighth book, and uh, you write one book a year, which is really unusual for authors these days. Do you feel pressure to increase or speed up the pace of your writing? Um, yes, and I
1: do. I wish I, I wrote faster, there's no doubt. Um, <laughs> I don't feel any pressure. What's great is I don't feel any pressure from, you know, from Berkeley, from my editor, from anyone there. Um, they've been really great about you know, sort of accepting that this is my pace. Um, Do I think that it would help if I could get, you know, a book every nine months or more often? I mean, I think, yes, I think that that would, but it's just, I'm just a slow writer. And I, you know, I I blame the kids a lot. I do have two young kids, that's true. But you know, it it really is that I'm also just sort of a, it just takes me time to just figure out what I want to do with the scene. And to get it all to come together the way that I want to. I'm a big reviser. I'm always changing things and going back and changing things. So yeah, I just kind of, this is just kind of the pace that I'm at for right now. Remember Sometimes,
0: when one book a year was like normal?
1: Well, right. And you know what's funny is it is, well, I, I, I'm going to say it's, it is it is normal in a lot of genres. And I don't know, I'm actually not super familiar with like mysteries or sci-fi or fantasy. But I mean, certainly in like literary fiction, a book a year would be considered fast
2: um, well I was just gonna say a couple years ago and maybe it wasn't a couple years ago maybe it was five or six years ago I remember that there was an article perhaps it was in The Times where they were lamenting the one book a year pressure because you're right uh, for fiction writers uh, there wasn't the pressure previously to put out one book a year and then there w- then that changed and uh, uh, readers or booksellers or whomever that nebulous entity that's in charge of, um, determining how many books you have to put out a year. Mm -hmm. It changed from when you were ready to put out a book to once a year. And I remember that article, um, a lot of authors were saying that that pressure was just too onerous. And, um, now it's every three months. Oh, it's 90
1: days. Absolutely. You go to, um, you know, RWA or RT. And I mean, there's, yeah, how to do a book every 90 days, which is funny, because um, I'm actually doing a panel with a couple other authors at RWA called Writing in the Slow Lane, and how to succeed, you know, when you're not the fastest writer. And a lot of this was an idea that um, myself and Susanna Kearsley actually came up with, we were talking about this at last year's RWA, about how that was just the message that I was hearing over and over again is you have to get out something new every 90 days. And I was expressing some frustration at that because that is just not possible for everybody. And I felt like maybe, you know, someone who has kids, she has another job that she's balancing. I just felt that that was such a discouraging message to be telling people that this is what you have to do, otherwise, you have no chance of succeeding. So a lot of the reason we put this panel together was just, I don't even actually know what we're going to say yet, because some of us don't know quite, you know, how we're making this all work. Um, But just to have four authors up there who have had, you know, successes, just being able to say, look, I, you know, you can, there are other options. You can make this work writing a little bit slower. So, um, so yeah, so we'll be doing that in July at this year's conference.
2: I don't know about Sarah, but I think that I form expectations based on the author's um... past history so if an author is real prolific then I start to expect more from her or and if an author like you Julie I know that you only do once one book a year and so I look forward to that one release and I don't have the expectation of oh I want five Julie James books Mm -hmm. a year Mm -hmm. but I also think that there's like a burnout for a reader for example, I'll just use Kristen Ashley. I remember when I first was introduced to Kristen Ashley, the first book that I read was Night, um, which was the one with the pimp, the hero with the pimp, and I was aghast. And um, But there was something about the book that made me want to read more of hers. And I kept reading and I kept reading. And I, I read like, I don't know, 12 books in a period of like two weeks. And, and that's really like reading 36 books because Kristen Ashley's books are like 800 pages long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I finally reached like peak Kristen Ashley, like where one book was just flowing into another book, flowing into another book. And she actually writes, or she did write in a lot of different series and a different genres. But at um, at one point, at some point, I just was like, okay, I've had enough. Uh, and I find that to be true with other authors as well. So you do a glom, um, some authors... Stephanie Lawrence is a perfect example. She writes one type of story, and I love that story. I mean, Devil's Bright* is one of my favorite books of all time, and I um, I can't reread it anymore because I've reread it so many times that it's just all too familiar. So there's no new um, joy that I can get from it. But her books were, are so similar that it's almost impossible to read them back to back. Like, there needs to be a buffer, between Mm -hmm. the time I've read one Stephanie Lawrence and the time that I read another Stephanie Lawrence. So to some extent, I feel like the multiple releases uh, can be exhausting for the reader, even though she loves that particular author, Mm -hmm. and that you start to have your expectations. Like, you know, Patricia Briggs is an example. I think she only publishes once every nine months at the very most, or the very fastest, but I think it's more like once a year, but I just, you know, in between uh, the times that she releases a book, I just look for other books to read, and then it's a real um, joy to get to have that book come out, and you just kind of s- set aside a certain, you know, weekend or evening to read that book, and so it becomes more of like an event for the reader, uh, whereas someone, uh, an author who's putting out several books, uh, doesn't give the reader any time to kind of rest and relax. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I, I think that's definitely one of the advantages from one of the few advantages from a marketing standpoint is that exactly like you said, it does become an event. You know, I haven't had a book out for a year. So my readers are really, really w- excited. We're gearing up, you know, everybody's like, you know, waiting for it to happen. And I think, so I think that is a, is, a, is a good thing. You get sort of more excitement. Another thing that you said that I thought was interesting is when you're talking about Um, Maybe readers getting a little bit fatigued if you read an author, you know, several of the books right in a row. Even if the plots aren't the same, authors have a voice. And, you know, a lot have a very distinctive voice. And so even if the plots are different you can just hear like they're just gonna sound the same and it's not like you're making the same jokes or whatever over and over again but like i have a sarcastic tone and i think even if the plots are different if you you know like you know other voices have a distinctive voice in that way like you would they would just start to sound the same because it's so much of the same voice
0: i once heard an agent talking at a conference that it was if you have an author who writes a book once a year as part of a series It's 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 not actually good to read them one after the other, after the other, after the other, because they're not meant to be read that way. And I've never really fully agreed with her on that. But I I agree entirely with Jane that when you know how often a book is going to come out from a particular author, you're totally willing to wait. Mm -hmm. It it makes perfect sense when you're working on a story. I'm assuming you're working on your next book now. Yes. Ooh, will you tell (laughs) us about it? Are you allowed to? I can say a little bit, this is part of the whole one book a year, I have to like parse out
1: the information, I have to make it exciting, <laughs> you know, for six months, um, just to have some build up. But um, yes, I could say
2: very It's going to have
1: words in it? It will have words. Excellent. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, Girl
2: carrying shoes on, <laughs> on the, the cover, cover. yes. <laughs> Good shoes yes. on
0: cover.
1: I haven't even seen a cover, but I think there's a. I think there's a. That's a safe bet that that might be part of it. Um, but uh, yes, so I'm working on my next one now. Another contemporary romance, and um, one thing that I have said that this is kind of new for me is it's going to be a reunion story.
2: Ooh, um, that I is have, new. Yes, those are called ha- second chance at love. Use the appropriate trope terms. No, no, because this is a Julie James book, so they didn't like each other. They hated each other. Oh. So <laughs> <laughs> then you have to so you still have to use the same the appropriate trope terms enemies to lovers.
1: Okay. okay, so it's it's that. They um, see in my <laughs> version, they knew each other way back when, but of course they hated each other. And um, six years later, they now are brought together via circumstances and um, have to work together and get along through that. So
2: Exciting coming in August. can you share that?
1: Yes. So uh, we're doing a trade re-release of It Happened One Wedding, which was last year's book. And I'm excited about that. I'm really excited to see, you know, kind of, you know, what happens with that. Um, It'll be the same cover and everything. It's just trade. Um, We talked, this was something that we talked about last year, Berkeley and I, we talked about, and, um, you know, I think there's some, I think we're, you know, we're interested in, in going into this trade format for some of my books. But as It was very like, you know, firm, although I I didn't get any pushback from this on Berkeley that I wanted the mass market to come out first um, and not be going into trade first because that's just a much higher price point. Um, So these are going to be re-releases that we're going to do after the mass market comes out first. So, yeah, so we'll see. It's just an opportunity to, um, you know, be in a different Part of the bookstore, really, and get different eyes on the book. Different people who, you know, don't go to the back, maybe to the romance section, haven't read romance yet. Um, and so, I'm, I'm I'm curious to see how this does. So that'll be that'll be fun.
2: Well, and I think going back, because I remember um, reading some comments about the podcast um, where readers said that they kind of like to know the some insidery stuff and. Uh, as it relates to the mark, the the f- frequency of releases. I think the one of the reasons that publishers um, used to do those. If you recall, um, and maybe Julie, this predated your entry into the romance genre. But Sarah would remember. Do you remember the um, Bantam back-to-back-to-back release of the Tracy Ann Warren historicals? Oh, totally. I remember. I, think-
0: I remember getting this huge package about the the new back-to-back releases. Of a that was the
2: first one that I remember. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. And then it was like, oh my gosh, this is a thing. We almost do the thing.
2: Right, because it was super successful for her. Yes, they it turned, was. They took her from a I don't know what she was selling before, but she became a New York Times bestselling author after that. So everyone started to do this back to back to back release, and I think my understanding was I was told that it um, they were able to um, use their marketing money more efficiently because they were advertising three books. At the same time, and so that was one of the nice things about a more frequent release, and it had to do also with the time that your books spend on the shelf at a store. The paperback has maybe a sixty-day uh, at the time. I have no idea what it is now. A sixty-day shelf rate, uh, shelf life, where before the um, bookstores would then take the books off the shelf and put new books out. Um, for trade and hardcover, the, the shelf life of those books are much longer. Um, and then the other thing, one of the things that self-published authors, why they say that you should publish 60 days, 90 days, it has to do with the Amazon, what they perceive to be the Amazon algorithm. I mean, Obviously, no one knows because it's secret. But... Um, Indie authors have perceived that uh, if you don't have a release every 60 or 90 days, then you fall off invisibility. So those are the reasons that authors are being encouraged, um, told, badgered, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) whatever adjective you want to put there or action verb you want to put there, um, to release faster. I think um, Courtney
1: Milan, I think, I didn't attend this workshop, but I heard people talking about it. That she did something at RWA last year, talking about the ninety-day thing. I, and, I was there for that. Yes. Oh, okay. And my understanding is that her take on it was, okay, let's be honest, not everybody can do a book every ninety days, but that you should be doing something every ninety days, and maybe that's a price drop, maybe that's a giveaway, maybe that's you know just something else. Um, and I liked that idea a lot, and certainly that's something that I you know do as well. I, th- I think I try and do events even you know, more than I, you know, every 90 days, but just staying on the radar of your readers and all of those opportunities are opportunities to get new readers and everything. So I really like that take on it, that you should be actively making sure that you're doing something every 90 days.
0: Yep. That was pretty much it. That in order to stay within that attention cycle of various algorithms and, and vendor preferences, doing something to highlight a book, even if it's not a new book, is better than pushing yourself to release books that you're not exactly ready to release because you have to do something every ninety days. I yeah, I could I could not do that. I know that that is not something I could do. One thing that makes me a little sad though is the idea that someone would would look at the publishing world in romance and say, oh well, I can't do that, so I might as well not do it at all.
1: That's exactly my my fear is I and I just I really felt that particularly you know some of the conferences last year that that it really was this, you have to, you have to do this. And I I just think there's a lot of people who have, you know, other things going on in their lives, but maybe they would want to try, you know, they have a job, but they'd want to try writing, you know, I'm going to say on the side, although it kind of becomes like, it's just a second job. Um, And I would hate for anyone to be discouraged and think that that's the only way to break into this market anymore. I just, I would like to think that it's, it's not that set, that there are other ways. And,
2: so you, you have um, obliquely uh, used people in your life, so maybe not um, based books off of them, but used some personality traits or ticks or events in your books. When you do that, do you ask permission first? do you give them the books? do you, how do you handle that? Um. I'm trying to think of specific
1: examples where I've I've done that. I mean, I use. Well, I remember the one you had the
2: girlfriend who had the list. Oh yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. I did have a good friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, was um, single into her late thirties, and we would have many conversations about her frustration with dating in the big city as a thirty-something, and just that whole scene. Um, and, you know, yes, there were conversations about a list that she had put together of things that she was um, looking for in a guy. And that made its way into, it happened one wedding, um, the heroine kind of comes up with this list. And, you know, I think one of the things, this actually is actually something that my friend realized, it's something that the heroine in this book realizes that, you know, he, And having a list, I mean, it's there's there's certainly there's certain things that are, you know, deal breakers for everyone. But to just go into the dating scene with this list of specific traits that you're looking for is probably not such a great idea. Um, And so that was something that I used in that story.
2: I know that you're a big fan of the um, Alexander McCall Smith series, but what else would you recommend to readers? or what have you read that you've really enjoyed? Actually, can we go back to
1: that Alexander McCall Smith <laughs> oh. series? Because, uh, Jane, you and I had a deal. Do you remember this? Yes, and I always remember
2: it. And, like, every time I see you, I'm like, shit, I have not read that book yet. Yes. So <laughs> and, for and, people and, who you, and I know. know I owe you because you read The Bride, which I don't think you like, but I can totally appreciate that.
1: Yes. So for people who don't know, Jane and I had a deal that if I read The Bride, that's Julie Julie Garwood, right?
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. The Bride by Julie
1: Garwood. Yes. If I read that one, that Jane would read the first book in the number one ladies detective agency series. So I'm waiting.
2: (laughs) It's going to happen. All right. Since we're doing the podcast and I don't like to have unfulfilled obligations, I will read it before the next podcast and I will give my little mini review on the next podcast. Great. Nice.
1: Nice. Okay. So what other books um, do I recommend? Was that the question?
2: Yes. Um, So who else do I like reading that you've read recently and enjoyed?
1: Shannon Stacy falling for max. that I loved, I love this book. I just read this, I think like a couple months ago. And the reason I loved it so much is the hero was so unique. Um, He's a beta hero for sure, but also quirky. He's very um, socially awkward. And I love the way um, Shannon Stacy did his, like his point of view and his thoughts and sort of his anxiety about navigating certain social situations. And I thought it was very cute and very romantic. And um, I really, really liked that. And just not the type of story Because you're always seeing alphas and, hey, this is coming from someone who I write alpha heroes and heroines. Um, And so, uh, but I just thought it was a very refreshing story. So that's one that I read recently.
0: I really liked that he was insecure about how to interact with people, but it was a genuine insecurity. Like it wasn't like just an act. He generally he he genuinely had no real sense of how to go about dating or meeting people or interacting with people, and his sort of matter of fact vulnerability about it was really powerful.
1: Yeah, in some ways, it reminded me of the Rosie Project, which I thought was also a great book. and, you know, it's certainly more of a, uh, while The Rosie Project is a romance, I think the romance is even more front and center in Falling for Max. But um, it just sort of reminded me of that, the type of hero and just sort of his concerns. And it, like you said, these very genuine concerns about how to navigate certain social situations. Then in terms of other books that I've read, so I'm in a book club and we, go, we meet once a month. And so I tend to read, and we read mostly literary fiction well, we, we read a mi- mix of everything. Um, and so I end up reading like one romance, then one non-romance. Um, so what I most recently read was um, my first Tarlin Coben book, um, The Stranger. Ooh. And I, I did like that. And I would call it a beach read, but a different kind of... We were laughing about it in our book club. We were calling it a man's beach read. Um, <laughs> like this is what the guy would have at the beach. Um, but we you know we all we we really liked it. I shouldn't say Man's Beach Read. But um it was like a fun, suspensey, very fast-paced, not too heavy serious plot, not too ridiculous either though. You know, sort of an average guy caught up in this um, you know, sort of whirlwind suspenseful situation. Um so I like that. That was good. And I'm trying to think. I am catching up still on um, Nalini Singh's Psy Changeling series. And I'm so excited because the book that's up next, and I know you're all going to laugh because I'm very far behind. But the next one is um, Caleb's book, um, Heart of Obsidian. Is that the name of that one? Yep, that's it. So uh, so I'm finally up to that book. And I'm almost kind of like... You're not that far behind. No, I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm like... I, you know, I'm here and I'm at this book and I'm like, Ooh, do I want to draw it out even more? Um, the anticipation, but, uh, yes. So that'll be the next one for me in that series.
0: I have a weird question for you. You said at the beginning that you write contemporary romance, which is totally true. And as Jane was pointing out, the trope tags are so important because contemporary romance describes a whole lot of books, many of which are completely not the same. So you have contemporary romance like yours that's set in a metropolitan area. Um, I, I had a, a long conversation with a couple different people on different podcasts and we describe your books as competence porn mm. because the heroes and the heroines are incredibly competent at their jobs and you see them doing their jobs and you see them enjoying their jobs, which is the part that I really like. Like, I'm really glad I have this job. I really like it. I like what I do. I'm going to keep doing it because I like it because I, that's why I do it. I really like that. But then you also have contemporary romances that are small towns. You have contemporary romances that are super, super hot. You have contemporary romances that have no sex in them at all. And so one of the reasons I think that the trope and and subgenre tags are so important is because it helps readers communicate specifically what it is that they're looking for and and specifically what a book is so if it meets their particular catnip needs. Do you have a particular way of describing your books to make make sure that people understand how your contemporary romances are distinct from other contemporary romances. I've I've been calling them to people who I recommend them to metropolitan, which mm-hmm. sounds so pretentious. I can't mm-hmm. it's, it's so pretentious of a term, but I could not think of a way of saying it's not small town, it's set in a city. Although one thing I do like is how when you write a city you you capture how a city functions in small neighborhoods and moving from one neighborhood to another means you change your dry cleaner and you change where you get chinese food and you change everything because it's every little neighborhood it functions as a small town in a lot of ways and that's true of a lot of lot of metro areas hey cat on the podcast <laughs> so how do you describe your books so
1: I call them romantic comedies. And in fact, I think, I think I've think i told this, this story before. But when I first started writing, I started with, um, so I, I'm a lawyer and I practiced law for a while. And then um, I just got this idea that I would write a screenplay. Um, I'm a big fan of movies. And um, so I wrote some screenplays and had some minor successes with that. Ultimately decided to turn one of my screenplays into a book, and in my first conversation with my editor at Berkeley, I kept describing the book as a romantic comedy, um, and she said, "You know, that's just not really a term that we use in the literary world. This this would be a contemporary romance." Um, and I think I've been told that some of that is there's just different notions that you get in the book world when you hear comedy, um, and I think. I don't know. I feel like if you think back to like, was it the '90s? Maybe not the '90s, but when we went through the really, I'm going to say the term chicklet when it was like the cartoony covers. I was and everything. just
0: going to say. You mean the cartoon covers where everyone had like giant heads and tiny little stringy bodies? Right. Yes. And I, I think there's some thought that if you say romantic
1: comedy, people are thinking of that, and not that there's anything wrong with that, but maybe that that term feels a little bit dated or something. But that is how I would describe and That's how I see them as just sort of, you know, lots of dialogue between and, you know, banter between the hero and heroine. Um, and yes, sort of like the big city as a backdrop and the friendships and everything. So, you know, I still tend to say romantic comedy, but Sarah, didn't you actually have the term contemporary uh, comedy? Ro- what did you say? You had a term that you came up with.
0: Oh, contemporary comedy romance. Yes. Yeah. It was. It was a way of saying it was a romantic comedy without people thinking. Oh, so it's like a Sandra Bullock movie in book form because right. they're not always like that. Right. And I also noticed that there aren't there aren't as many movies being made that are called romantic comedies anymore.
1: It's true. I, I have a friend who's um, a producer in Hollywood, and we were talking about this, and he said um, that directors, it's the it's directors. They don't want to take on romantic comedies. Frankly, so many of them don't turn out well. That it's just, um, you know, I, I think there's a fear that you're going to go into this as a project, as a producer, as a director. And it's, you're just dooming yourself from the beginning from like in terms of reviews and everything. Um, and so, yes, it's, and the ones that are getting made are these, I think they're skewing more R-rated um, and tend to be a little bit more body um, than sort of what you and I would think of like the Meg Ryan Sandra Bullock type romantic comedy.
0: Yeah, there's definitely more of a, I think body is the right word, sort of a body gross out buddy humor, Mm -hmm. bro humor too, more than meet cute romantic comedies, because there used to be, you know, one per quarter, sometimes two. Right, and no, Hugh there's... Grant was in like all of them. <laughs> yes, Hugh Grant was a frequent player in those movies. But I don't think romantic comedy is the right way to describe what you write. Even though it's comedy and it's contemporary and it's romantic, it's it's not quite the same thing. It doesn't have the same narrative beats, if that makes sense. yeah. So I always think of what you write as contemporary comedy romance but when I'm like giving recommendations to people I always have a few sort of keywords that I use for different authors backlists like yours are you know set in Chicago with competent heroines and and professionals like the people who are working in these books are professionals and they're really good at their jobs There's also the you know the sort of contemporary trend of uh, something, something has happened and I am starting my life over and I just realized that I have not been my true self and so now I'm going to go to this quirky place with a cute name and I'm going to find my new life. There's a sort of a, start, a starting over contemporary. Does that make right. sense? There's yes. the starting over contemporary but none of your characters are starting over. No, they're they're not... adding on.
1: That's right. Mine are not starting over. Mine are people who think everything is set and that they totally have their acts together and they're like going along with their lives and like, this is good, I have everything figured out. And then something is going to happen that is going to completely shake up their world and they're going to have to figure out where to go from there. I like throwing people who think they have their acts together into a situation that they're completely not comfortable with. And either, maybe it's something like in Suddenly One Summer where it's a break-in and it really, you know, sort of changes everything for her. Or it's even just somebody comes into their life that rattles them yes. in a way that they're not prepared for and, you know, gets under their skin kind of in a bad way but kind of in a good way, in a way that no one else has before.
0: Yep, totally. And one of the things I really liked about... Um, it's so embarrassing when I talk to an author and I'm like, you know, the one you wrote with this one, the one who gets the tacos in the first chapter. What color chapter, is what color is the dress on the cover? That's a good way to remember it. Um, the one I remember most is uh, tacos. <laughs> she gets tacos in the oh, first chapter. Right, right. In the chapter. first chapter,
1: yeah. I, I don't remember chicken. which chicken tacos extra pico. Yeah. Yes,
0: thank you. I remember that so clearly. Do I remember the name of the book?
1: No. Yes. It's Love Irresistibly.
0: Thank you. It's the red dress. Yes, it is. The uh, is a very the,
1: famous dress, apparently. It's the, a Hermes band-a- band-aid the, dress. The band-aid it? dress, yes. Yes, or bandage, or I don't, I'm probably saying this wrong, but yes, when that cover came out, I had a whole bunch of people write me, people who obviously are much more fashion savvy than I am, saying, oh my gosh, that's the Hermes dress. So, which I thought was kind of cool because that was a photo shoot. So that means that Berkeley went and
0: got themselves a got, dress. Got dress. Yes. Well, between um, your cover and then uh, the Dorinda Jones, Charlie Davidson series, the first one has the skull silver sandals. I believe those are Alexander McQueen. So, I mean, between the t- two of you, you have like a whole fashion lineup. Right. Right. Well, and there's some theory that the shoes
1: in It Happened One Wedding might be Louboutins that the bottoms were Photoshopped to be pink in the cover instead of red. I'm not sure.
0: That makes um, sense because that's a trademark. Yes. So, so can't use theory. that. So, yes.
1: But what were we saying
0: before we got off on the chicken tacos? Chicken pico. (laughs) That the conflict of the taco book, as I am now, unfortunately, (laughs) stuck within my my brain is such a sad place, that the conflict in love irresistibly is in part, these are two really busy people. How do they make room for someone who is increasingly important? I mean, a lot of the conflict was work-life balance. And I remember we did a, a, a chat at BNN about it, or Barnes and Noble in, I think it was the Upper East Side or Upper West Side. And, and I was saying, you know, one of the major conflicts is work life balance, which sounds really boring and dull when you say it out loud, but in the book, it is an actual piece of tension. Yeah. Because there's well, some busy human beings. It, it, you know,
1: look, in contemporary romance, like, you know, sometimes you have books that have like a big thing, you know, that's keeping them apart. But for the most part, it's, you know, People's sort of fears and insecurities and their anxieties. And so in that sense, you know, this is just one of those things, but it's a very real thing that I, I see amongst my girlfriends is, you know, how is finding that time for your personal life and whether it's, you know, my friend who was in her, you know, thirties and finding time to date, you know, mm-hmm. while having a very busy career or, you know, Maybe you are married and you have kids and, you know, balancing that aspect of your personal life. And I think that that's something that a lot of people can relate to. And it can be a very real obstacle, you know, just um, so. So, yes, that is something that the heroine and the hero in that book are are sort
0: of um, trying to navigate. And it's a totally valid, totally understandable conflict, too. It's hard to make it sound interesting in the cover copy. But it's it works perfectly.
1: Well, and notice we didn't say that in the comments. Yes, copy. So exactly. Copy, <laughs> and, and it's true because we're sitting here, we're telling this about the book, and the book is not just like, oh, where do I find time to date? Um, you know, the book starts off, they meet because um, she is the general counsel for a restaurant company and the FBI wants to bug a table so that they put microphones under the table so that they can listen in on a in a conversation. So there's actually this very sort of um, Specific more, uh, this, more exciting like. You know plot that gets kicked off with the fbi doing this investigation and everything so so yes there is other stuff going on other than just where do i find time to meet someone for coffee
0: but it's a good conflict it works it does well it's real so you didn't quite answer the what's your next book about what's going on with the next book is there any tiny tidbit of information that you can give us aside from the fact that it will have all of the same letters of the alphabet as your previous books
1: (laughs) Well, remember, you know, the whole thing about stringing this out. I haven't, well, I'll say this because I dropped this hint and some people have started figuring out. I did tweet in February and I think I posted on Facebook that I had met. Um, so one of the people that I work with, you know, for, is my research consultants is this um, FBI agent in Chicago and um, an active FBI agent. And I did mention back in February or March, which is when I tend to plot my books that I had just had lunch with him um, to discuss sort of things that, you know, he's working on. And I think people can maybe draw conclusions about where the next might, book might be going from, from that. Um, but other than that, no, I'm not saying too much.
0: Bummer. I was hoping for like a whole plot summary here.
1: No, well, I'm still writing it, so that okay. means I'm still, you know, figuring things out as I go along. But is there a uh, is there a Pinterest board yet? I do. Well, I have a Pinterest board for the book that just came out, so right. there is one for Suddenly One Summer. Um, I have a Pinterest board that's not public yet that I'm working on because I do tend to be very visual. Uh, I was going to say, I know that you
0: are. A, you include a lot of
1: visuals in your writing.
0: It just helps me,
1: like. If I'm thinking, oh, the heroine, you know, she'd she'd have a cute suit in this outfit. And for the last book where the heroine was a divorce attorney, like, her whole wardrobe was basically Olivia Pope's from Scandal. Uh, (laughs) You know, I just love that character's wardrobe. And so on the Pinterest board, it's like all pictures of Kerry Washington in different in different suits. Um, so, you know, yes. And granted, some of this is a little bit of a distraction when you're writing, but I'll be thinking, oh, she would have a cute suit on in this. And then I quickly Google, you know, cute suits or something like that. Um, but it just helps me to sort of see it. So I do the Pinterest board. Um, I don't make it public, but I do start um, putting things in there as, I, as I'm writing, as I go.
0: Where do you find all of your visuals? Like, do you have things that you have in mind? Like, I want the heroine to be wearing something like this, or do you just sort of say, okay, for the next two hours, I get to go shopping online for my character. Woohoo! Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's
1: like, truly, I'll type in cute outfits, cute work outfits for 2015 or something. And you'll get like somebody else has already done that Pinterest, you know, and put that together. So yeah, so it's, um, it's that. Then for um, the board, the things that I also put together, I use, for the most part, I use real locations um, in Chicago. So real restaurants, um, real bars and stuff. And so I'll break and I'll check and see if it's a place that I haven't been to you know, I'll check their website out and look at, you know, and, and at that. Um, so that's another thing that I'll use. Um, and then, of course, we all have our hero and heroine inspirations, like who we sort of picture in our head um, for the character. And if you get really bored, you know, you can always go google henry cavill pictures or something which yeah. is always a nice way to
0: to pass the time it's horrible that that's part of your job oh i know it's just terrible so we can't get any more hints about the future book i think i dropped a
2: very big hint there hmm okay i'll i'll <sighs> saying the next book is about an fbi agent that's well yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe
0: is it, is it is it Melissa McCarthy? Oh, no, she's CIA in, that, in Spy. She's CIA. I want to see that. I heard it's hilarious. Oh, I heard it's in Fantastic. I really want to see it, too. There's Did a you... lot of movies I want to see. When my kids go to camp, I'm going to be like, we're going to the theater and we're living there now. Because, you know, it's really hard to enjoy a movie when you're paying money for a babysitter.
1: Absolutely. Like, it
0: bumps me out because the tickets are already $14 and then I got to pay the babysitter. And I'm like, this is not worth it. I like it... to be on my couch and go pee whenever I want. It's the question
1: we ask: Is this a hundred dollar movie? That's yes! what, every time. <laughs> after you pay for the sitter, it's at least a hundred dollars. Um, yes, it's nice. Although this doesn't help with the sitter. My son is eight now, and what's been fun is he finally is the age where we could take it. Like he saw Avengers two in the theater, Whoa. And, we're, and we're taking him to see Jurassic World tomorrow, which is he's been looking forward to this since like last year. Um, and it's fun when they get to that age where you could start taking them with, I mean, obviously we still need a sitter for my daughter cause she's too young. She's mm-hmm. four. Um, but it's fun to do, be doing those things like with them and seeing how excited they get.
0: Are you going to start writing characters who have children?
1: That's a good question. I can um,
0: almost see in my mind, Jane shaking her head. No, 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 no. She's not a big fan of kids in books. Well, I've been wanting to do a pregnant heroine for, forever. And I just, I just,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just, the idea never fully comes together. Um, It just never works out. But I always just thought that that would be uh, just a very interesting comment. There's, I I think we've maybe actually talked about this, but there was this movie and it was not a good movie. um, But there's this movie with Jennifer Lopez where she decides to go forward with in vitro and right after she, um, goes to the procedure and is pregnant. She has her meet cute with a guy in a taxi cab and they start dating. And It's like the idea that she's dating while she's pregnant and everything. And I just thought that was such like a neat idea. I don't think the execution of the movie was that great. Um, but, um, you know, it, well, it's so hard for me because I never plan ahead. I don't know what my book after this one that I'm writing will be. I have no clue. I have no thoughts about it. Um, So I would say that on the issue of children, it's, I'm not opposed to it, but I'm also not trying to do that if it fit with the storyline. But I do think that doing authentic kids' voices can be tough. Yes, I agree with you. Either they're going to be, they're going to sound way too mature and old um, and wise, and you have you know the, the wise six year old character., <laughs> um, and that doesn't ring true to me or they're authentic. And then, you know, they sound like you know you're four and you're eight year olds, and you know, how much are you gonna you know do with 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 that, really? I mean, you know, i I just think. So I don't know, I think it's tricky to to do them and to not have them be like, I always use this as an example, Ben in Friends, Ross's first child in Friends, yes. like we saw so heavily in the first and second season because they needed him
0: for the plot and then, you know. Gone. Gone. Just like the monkey. Didn't he have a monkey first season too? Yes, but we did see the monkey. And yes. Just, I think the monkey got
1: more of a farewell than Ben ever did. Yes, um, definitely yes. true. Barcelle. Um, And so I think that's another problem is using them well, but then you don't want them around when it's time to have a nice, hot, sexy scene. So um, true. And where, you know, where are they? Where are the kids? Yep. Uh, so I think it's
0: tricky to do that. It is very difficult. I, <laughs> I remember reading an Amish romance at some point and it was like magical Amish childcare would show up at every perfect moment. Mm -hmm. Like, just as the hero and heroine were having a moment, my dog did not like it, first of all, and somebody would be like, let me take your daughter. Hey, for the whole weekend. Yeah, let me just take your daughter. We're going to take her for a few hours. Bye. Yes. My dog is not a fan of Amish romances. <laughs> he has many things to say about them, apparently. Right. We right. can't not have pets in the podcast. I'm going to have to like start reaching out to PetSmart, be like, hey, would you like to be a special guest sponsor? We have a mm-hmm. lot of pets. They will all speak positively of you. Of course, when we want them to talk, they won't. I'm really glad we talked about the the pressure to publish something every 90 days because i I, I have to think that that is incredibly stressful, especially for someone who, A, like you, publishes every year or someone who's been publishing once a year and it's been working so far.
1: Well, yeah, and and I'm I'm actually really glad we talked about that too because it's something that, you know, last year, you know, I was really thinking a lot about because I just felt that was such the message that people kept hearing over and over again. And, you know, this is coming from, you know, the way i got into writing i had a job that i was a lawyer at a large firm which you know the, you work tons of hours if you had told me back then the only way that you're going to be successful is if you can do this and keep turning out a new book every 90 days i would have been like what's the point you know i mean i mean it's, that's not feasible for me and i just felt like that's so not realistic for some people and i would hate for people to get really discouraged from that so I'm I'm glad we got to talk about that too, and it's interesting because I don't see why you know I don't I, I don't know if that's how it is in sci-fi you know and, and other commercial fiction genres I don't know so maybe somebody can tell me if that's how it is see but if it's it not
2: I I think it has to do with the fact that there's romance readers are very price conscious
1: mm-hmm.
2: and so um, a small a dollar raise in the price of book can mean that that reader uh, will wait until she can get your book not you personally but a book um, uh, used or some other on sale or something else like that and they will replace that with a cheaper even lower quality good they read faster and they consume more and that's why
1: well that raises an interesting question then whether Right. Whether that there's a, a sort of a pressure on the romance author to, you know, be making your product unique enough that you still or offering something that still gets that person, even though, you know, they could get four of the same, you know, within a year period or whatever. Um, I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. But yeah, no, I'm glad we got to talk about that. Right. And then
0: you were talking about, Jane, the, the burnout cycle where people get through with a particular thing relatively quickly. I'm, I'm so curious. Okay, we've had billionaires, we've got stepbrothers. What's next?
2: Oh, I think the burnout rate is tremendous right now. I mean, I feel like the readers burn through tropes so fast. I think in order to have a sustainable writing career, you have to either be the voice of the the subgenre, like I think Joe Wilde is the voice of motorcycle club books and that she could always write those books and still have success.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Whereas a new person coming in is very difficult to break in, I think, because the market is really saturated. Although, you know, people still want those books. You know, a smart author who's capable of writing a variety of things, I think, looks at the list and say, what's not popular? I'm going to write that. Mm-hmm. Is I think that's the smartest way to go because you want to be ahead of the trend, especially if you're writing you know something that you're releasing every 90 days. And if you look at some of these authors that are releasing every 90 days, their things are um, you know 10,000, 12,000 words. So mm-hmm. if that's all you're putting out every 30, 60, 90 days, that's pretty small output. But you know for these subscription based services, uh, a reader doesn't get mad about that. I had uh, read a subscription or a serial by an author who had eight parts. And I think each part was about eight to 10,000. And had I had to pay for those individually, <laughs> I, 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 I would have stopped. But since they were part of my subscription, it was like, fine, I'll read the next one. And I'll read the next one. And I'll read the next one. Is there's no, inv- there was very little investment for me, both in time and money. Uh, for me to read those. And I think that a lot of readers feel that way. I also think there's a little danger in that for readers. Like I think about myself and how once you get used to reading something, for example, first person, present tense. Do you remember how I remember just being super resistant to first person, past, um, and I hated it. And then um, I would never even read first person, present tense. And now it's like hard for me to read a third person because you, you get so used to a certain type of writing style. Yep. Um, and that when you encounter something unfamiliar, you're kind of like, hmm, this is going to take more effort from me. Do mm-hmm. I want to give it that effort? I think of the book, um, which is, you know, my favorite book of the last five years, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. He talked about how um, the reason that you that certain songs are popular are because they are the same song <laughs> over and over, and that's true. Taylor Swift's 1989 album, which I love, is basically the same beats and notes over and over and over. Oh and no, that's totally a-
0: true. There's a descending scale in all of her songs. The same so- the same notes that are um, "boys only want love if it's torture." Mm-hmm. that same uh, descending yeah. scale is the background for um, the next three songs that she's put out that same scale is in every song it's freaking me out so yeah, that's amazing I didn't realize that it wasn't just me who was crazy and thinking that
2: no there's I think this per, funny I, um, video five on five YouTube where these one. three comedians who play um, instruments go through like the last 10 years oh I've seen that and it's big, all Bell. Yeah, and it's all the same oh. chords, series. It's not only the same chords, but it's the series of chords that are the same. Yes, and, it's, uh, and Bell's canon. Darwin talks about how we're habituated to respond a certain way to certain stimuli, and so they talked the the example that they were talking about in the book was the movie or the the song "Outcast," Hey Yeah, Mm -hmm. and how that was so unusual of a song. And um, even though the record uh, executives loved the song and they thought it was really catchy and very different, um, when they started playing the song on radio, it was a total bomb. So what they did, I guess, because I don't know, they really believed in the song and they wanted to make it popular, they started playing it in between like, Celine Dion and something else. Mm-hmm. Something that people profess to hate, but listen to anyway. So they, uh, I don't, they must have paid radio stations to do this, but the radio stations started playing Hey Ya after a very popular um, song, and mm-hmm. then they would play another very popular song after Hey Ya with the more familiar tunes and progressions and notes. And that's how they felt that Hey Ya became a success.
1: No, well, well yeah, and, and well, I mean, even in a broader sense, bringing it back to books, like you know, just there are beats to romances, there are beats to mysteries, and and everything. And I think, yes, that's something that readers like, and that's good. Um, you know, I was thinking about this because that book that I was talking about, the Harlan Coben book, that was the suspense. It had. I don't read a, a bunch of mysteries, but I've read a, you know some, and they all have an infect girl on the train had this as well. The scene at the end where the villain explains their whole plot and um, how they did it and why and everything. And in our, these were two book club books, both Girl on the Train and Stranger were book club books. And so I was talking about, this is my frustration with that, how it's in every mystery that I read that scene. Um, And then I realized, well, Maybe that's because that's part of what we expect to see. That is the equivalent of the breakup scene in a romance or a romantic comedy. You have to have that beat, that dark moment. Um, And so I I was saying, like, clearly this, this must be something that is completely accepted within, you know, people who love mysteries and read a lot of these, because if I'm picking this up after reading just a few here and there, you know, clearly I'm not the only one noticing it, but yes, it must be something that that's just part of what you expect to see.
0: And it all gets explained to the detail. Oh yeah. It's this long, like, monologue. <laughs> Which is hilarious because that was actually a running joke in The Incredibles because my son was homesick, so yes! we, 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 we got The Incredibles. I caught you monologuing. I caught you monologuing. And so it's like a running joke that that's something that heroes do
1: yes yes every mystery has this i read um jk rowling her other name the um cuckoo's calling book these are very talented authors who are having this scene so clearly it's either there truly is no other way to convey this information which i don't (laughs) think or this is what the reader expects and they want this moment like they want the breakup scene in the romance um and so we're going to give it to them so that's kind of what i've drawn from that
0: and that is all for this week's podcast i want to thank jane and julie james for hanging out and talking about all of the things. I'm always fascinated when we have a conversation with an author that goes from discussing writing as a craft, to writing as a business, to reading as an entertainment. It's, I always think it's so cool that all of the romance authors that I speak to are also very much readers as well. And we all think about how we read and how it changes. So thank you for that conversation. We have a bunch of future podcasts coming up because we publish one a week and that's how we roll here. We're going to talk to sociologists who are studying romance. I'm going to talk to a redheaded girl. And we have to find out if Jane actually read the number one Ladies detective agency and what she thought because she said she was gonna. So now we have to find out if she did, right? Obviously. This podcast is brought to you by Intermix, publisher of yours all along. The brand new Loving on the Edge e-novella from New York Times bestselling author Ronnie Lauren. You can download it on June 16th and if you were wondering is this more peat bog why yes yes it is this is the peat bog fairies from their new album black house this song is called strictly Sambuka. and i don't know about you but i am entirely in favor of things being strictly Sambuka because that would be awesome for everyone you can find this album on itunes on amazon or you can find out more on the peat bog fairies website and of course Thank you to Sassy Outwater, who you can find on Twitter at Sassy Outwater for providing the music because I think she has production credits on this album. And if you were listening last week when I was talking about how Sassy was undergoing brain surgery, she came through her brain surgery very, very well. She has a very long recovery, but her MRI shows that they got all of the tumor and she is now cancer-free, which is freaking awesome. Plus, if you listen to our interview... You know that surgeons were going to have to 3D print a piece of her skull. I have not yet heard whether or not we have a unicorn. We have elf ears. What's going on here? I would like to find out. And so, you know, this is the kind of hard-hitting journalism that you can expect from me. What is the shape of the piece of the skull? And did she get a horn? Because everyone needs to be a unicorn, right? So, Sassy, if you are listening, we hope you are doing very, very well. And dude, if you're not a unicorn, I'm going to be really bummed But you knew this already. As always, if you have feedback, ideas, or suggestions, you can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. Y'all send the best email, and we love to hear from you. So if you feel like saying something back to us, or you find yourself talking back to the podcast while listening to it, and then you want to write those things down, that's totally cool. sbjpodcast at gmail.com is where you can find us. In the meantime, on behalf of Julie James and Jane and myself, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend.